0: I want you to think for a second, have you ever got a really uh, good gift in your life, maybe from uh, a loved one or a spouse or your kids or whoever it is, but a really great gift uh, that you didn't ask for? Has that ever happened to you? Like where someone surprises you and they give you a gift and it's something that like maybe you didn't even know you needed or, or maybe something that you hadn't articulated or something you maybe wanted, but you didn't even tell anybody. And then all of a sudden, someone gives you that gift, and it's really awesome because it's not like you asked for it. It's not like you said, hey, I'd really like this, but they gave you this gift, and they gave you this gift, um, and I think this is what usually makes those kind of gifts so special and so great is because they know you. They know you well enough to know what you're like and what you like and what would be helpful and what would be beneficial, and they give you a gift in that way, and it's like, oh, wow. Wow. And that's happened to me a couple times. Joanna's done that for me a couple times in her life at different times where I've gotten something like that. And it's like, oh, that's incredible. But you know what's so great about more than just the gift or getting gifts is great. And it's fun to get something that you really wanted or you enjoy. But I think more than that is the getting that gift is that the person knows you, right? We, we all want to be known. We all want to be loved. We all want to be seen. And you feel seen in that moment when somebody gives you a gift like that. And you're like, yes, you know me. You know what I like and you know what I would enjoy and you gave me this gift and it's this wonderful thing. And I think about what a cool experience that is when that happens. And I was kind of reflecting on that this week and thinking about that, that they know what you're like. And then I was thinking about it in terms of our relationship with God and what God is like and who he is and the way he's revealed himself to us and what it means to have a relationship with him and to really know what he's like. And to, and to approach God in the way that he's revealed himself to us. You know, we say, uh, oftentimes when we think big picture about what we're made for and who we are, we go to things like the Westminster Catechism that gives us great big kind of handles to hold on to. Doctrinal truth of what the Bible says. You know, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? To, to know God and enjoy him forever. To know who God is and to, to know him and to love him and to have this relationship with him. And to know him, we have to know him in the way in which he's revealed himself to us. And so we've been doing this series uh, just for July. We've taken a break kind of in the middle of the summer, the series in July where we're asking your questions. Give us questions of things that you're wrestling with and questions that you have and things that you're not sure about or that you struggle with. And one of the questions that we got a couple different ways actually had to do with the Trinity. And it's a good question. It's, It's actually a really good question if you're a believer been a follower of Jesus, you've, you've been reading the Bible, you've come to faith in Christ and you start to understand what the Bible says about who God is. I think it's a question that every Christian wrestles with because the Bible tells us that there is one God, but that God is three persons and each person is fully God, but there's one God. And you start to hear that and your mind starts to go through that and you go, that's really hard. It's hard to hold that together. It's really difficult to hold the fullness of what that picture looks like, but that's the way that God has revealed himself to us. And so one of the questions was just like, hey, I struggle with the three-in-one nature. How does that work? How can God be three and be one? It's a great question. But then another question was, well, when you start to read in the Bible and it says there's three-in-one, they're all God, and we're saying these things, but then there's points where it seems like there's a hierarchy, if the father tells Jesus to do things or the father sends uh, the spirit in the name of Jesus and you start to go, well, wait a second, how are they one and how are they all God if that's the case? And that's another great question because the Bible does say that. And we're going to see that in our text today, actually. And it does say that. But then even another question that comes out of that is who do we pray to? If God is three persons, but one God, how do we pray and what does that look like? And who do we pray to? And I think all of those are great questions. And maybe you've wrestled with some of those. Uh, I would say if you're a believer and if you're holding to the Bible and if you're holding to this idea, you've probably wrestled with it at different times because it is difficult. And there are some things that push the limits of our understanding. And I'll tell you, even standing up today, opening God's word with great fear and trembling, I'm going to try to explain something that I can't fully explain, (laughs) But we're going to rely on what God's word says and what Jesus teaches us. And what I want us to look at today here in John chapter 14 is Jesus does teach this. This is what the Bible says. It is the teaching of scripture. It is the teaching of our Lord and what Jesus says. And he tells us this. And I want to show you that. And as we look at it, we're going to look at John chapter 14 today. And the first thing that we're going to look at is we want Jesus to define what is true. We want God's word to tell us what is true. And Jesus is going to say, that the father is God and that he is God and that the Holy Spirit is God. And he's gonna show us that. And I want us to see that first and foremost. And then secondly, admittingly, that can be confusing. So I want us to kind of maybe lean on a couple theological giants that maybe help bring some of that into clarity. And then lastly, I want us to answer those questions about the hierarchy and how do we pray and what does that look like? But also just to think together about why this is so very important. So very important to what we believe. And so let's start with big picture of what it tells us here in John chapter 14 and what we say. Uh, let me just say this right at the beginning when we start to talk about the Trinity. Maybe you have heard this before. Whenever we start to go into analogies, they almost all quickly turn into heresy. Have you ever heard that before? Right. As soon as we start to say, well, the Holy Spirit or the God, the Trinity, uh, the triune God is kind of like water and ice. And uh, then you get into problems. And so be very careful warning when we start to give analogies. And there's going to be a couple things that I'm going to try to bring to that are analogies that are trying to help us understand it. fully. But I want you to hear from the beginning that there's a warning there that you can quickly get out of sorts by doing that. And so don't push those too far. They're just there to try to help you. But what we want to do is we want to hold fast to the definitions that we have that are hard-earned, that the church has held to for a long time, that are that are found in scripture, that hold together in that way. And so one of the things that we use here is the New City Catechism. And one of the first questions in the New City Catechism asks about who God is. And he says it's three persons in the true and living God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are same in substance. They are equal in power and glory. And I think we're on safe ground when we say it that way. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what it says, and that's what the church has confessed for a long time. There's a a little uh, diagram that you've maybe seen before. I think we have it up here, where it talks about this, that we say that The father is God, the spirit is God, the son is God, but the father is not the spirit and the spirit is not the son and the son is not the father. And when you get that little analogy there and you start to look at it, you get to this definition that we have that we've held to historically in the church, the orthodox faith, that God is three persons and each person is fully God. The father is God, the spirit is God, the son is God. And there is only one God, And so there are distinct people, persons in this, but at the same time, they are all God and there's only one God. And that's the definitions that we need to hold to. And so as we think about this together, you need to hold tightly to that because that is what the Bible teaches and what it says. And I wanna show you that, that it says this right here in John chapter 14, that Jesus teaches this. And so in John chapter 14, what we're looking at here and what Jesus says, just so we're clear where we are, This fits, we're actually going to be in John 14 in another month or two as we're working our way through the gospels chronologically. But John 13 through 17 is what we often refer to as the upper room discourse. It's Jesus with his closest disciples on the night before he's crucified, hours before he's arrested. They leave from this teaching as Jesus spends time with them and they go out and he gets arrested in his sham of a trial. And within 12 hours of what he's saying right here, he's on the cross. And I love when you read through and you think about the context of what Jesus is saying and he teaches a lot of really important things in John 13 through 17. And in fact, I'd say the clearest teaching on the Trinity, that Jesus is the one teaching us that you see in John 14, 15, 16, even 17 as he talks about this. But the importance of this passage is so that I see Jesus loving his disciples well. As he's preparing them for what's about to happen. And so you get the beginning of John 14. And he's telling them, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going away, but I will come for you again. And he's telling them these things, right? And they don't understand exactly what he's saying. Remember, we've been saying, if you've been with us, as we've been working through our series on the overview of the gospels, that nobody, none of his disciples understand that he's going to die. Even though he keeps telling them, they don't see it that way. That's not their conception of the Messiah, And so you see that even here as he's telling them, I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna prepare a place for you. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. And so I want to stop right there and just think for a second about what Jesus said there because he just said a lot. And he says right there at the beginning, it's not something that's unique to this chapter. This is not new information of what Jesus has said. He said it over and over in different times in different ways. But what Jesus just said here is that he's God. Philip says, show us the father. And Jesus says, how can you say that? You've been with me this long and you've seen me. If you have seen me, you have seen the father. I mean, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying there. When you see me, you see God that's what jesus is saying and it's not the only time he says it in many times in different ways that he's god right uh, we were looking at this in the equipping hour last week john chapter 8 he's having this discussion with the religious leaders of the day and he says abraham longed to see my day and they all go what you're not yet 50 years old how could abraham you're saying you know abraham and jesus says before abraham was i am And he takes the covenant name of God and he applies it to himself. And he says, I'm eternal and I know Abraham. And they all go, they're ready to stone him because he just said he's God. This is not unique to this chapter. Jesus says this over and over. But what he's saying here is that he is in the father. The father is in me. When you see me, you see the father. It is a direct claim of deity and oneness with the father that Jesus says. In fact, it's the exact same thing that it says in Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear what that's saying? that Jesus is the exact imprint of God, that when you see Jesus, you see God. That's exactly what Jesus says here, that he and the Father are one, that they are both God. And he's saying that very clearly. So you go back to our definition there of what the Bible says. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And you see that real clearly with Jesus and the Father right here in what he says. But what I wanna show you is it's not just Jesus and the Father. Jesus actually says this about the Holy Spirit too in this passage. Right after this, verse 15, he says, if you love me and you keep My, com- you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. The word helper is advocate or counselor. He says he will give you another helper or counselor or advocate to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. And so Jesus is now talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to return to the glory that I have with the father and I'm going back to the father and I'm going to send the spirit to you and the spirit's going to come and he's going to be with you and he's going to be in you. And he starts to talk about the Holy Spirit starts to teach us about what that looks like. And there's two things I want you to see there real clearly. The first one's in verse 17. He says, he's going to come. And he says, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he dwells with you and will be in you. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus says it's a person. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he is going to come and he's going to be with you. And you know him and you're going to see him. And he's going to be with you. You see the the language he's using there. He's pointing to the spirit as a person. Be careful here because when we start to talk about the Trinity, oftentimes we go into this kind of language of the Holy Spirit is a feeling or a wind or a force or a breeze. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, I'm going to send him to you and he is going to be with you and he's going to lead you and he's going to guide you and he's going to teach you and he's never going to leave you. And he says all these things, but he says very clearly, it's a person. The whole of the New Testament says this. It says it over and over again. You could go to Ephesians chapter 4 where it tells us that the Holy Spirit, that he can be grieved. You could go to Hebrews chapter 10 where it says the Holy Spirit is outraged at the trampling of Jesus' sacrifice and the shedding of his blood. When we make a mockery of what Jesus has done, that he becomes outraged. You could go to Romans chapter 15 where it says the Holy Spirit loves And what you have, the witness that you have in scripture is the Holy Spirit is a person. And that he teaches and that he loves and that he's grieved and that he tells us these things. And in all these things, the Holy Spirit comes and he's this person. But then the second thing that I want you to see here is what Jesus says about sending him. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, forever. And so when he says another helper, another advocate, another counselor, the word that Jesus uses there for another, there's two words for another in Greek. One is the opposite of or different than. And then the other word is exactly like the former. And so what Jesus says is I'm going to send you another counselor, another helper, another advocate. And he's talking about himself as the first counselor advocate helper because he's leaving. He's been with them. He's going away, but I'm going to send another one. And what he's saying, that's just like me. Jesus just said, I'm God. That when you see me, you see God. When you see me, you see the father, that the father and I are one, that I'm in the father and he's in me. And now I'm going to send you another helper. That's just like me. This person, the Holy Spirit is going to come who is God. And what Jesus is teaching and telling us right there is what we have in our conception that God is three persons. And each person is fully God, but there is one God. And he's teaching us that we didn't make this up. It's not an invention of the church. It is clearly in scripture. Jesus is the one who teaches us this, who tells us this, that tells us that this is true, that there is one God. And the Holy Spirit is a person and he is God. And that Jesus is a person and he is God. And the Father is a person and he is God. And that perfectly together they are one. Now I realize, say that, and there it is in scripture. Now it's all clear, right? He <laughs> got it. There it is. That's what Jesus says. And he does say it and it is in scripture. And we're not making this up. It's coming right from his teaching. But that still leads us to, man, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to get our head around that, is it not? Even when you've got the good definition, and I would tell you this, please go back to that. Think about those definitions, that they're the same in substance and equal in power and glory, that God is three persons and each person is fully God and there is one God, and hold on tightly to those things, and then in any analogy or any way you think about it, run it through that filter, because those are the things the Bible clearly says are true. And you have to think on those. And so I wanna give you just a couple of things to hopefully help to think on. And the first one I thought about, I went back and forth. Do I take this out of my sermon or do I not? And I left it in, but I'm gonna tell you with this caveat. Two people that I think are really helpful when I start to think about the Trinity in my own life. And this first one is Jonathan Edwards. Do you know who Jonathan Edwards was? He's a Puritan pastor that lived in Massachusetts in the 1700s. Most people will say today that he's the greatest American theologian who ever lived, if not the most, one of. He was brilliant. I read Jonathan Edwards' biography years ago. said he used to spend 13 hours a day in his study. And then he would get up and he'd go walk in the woods and he'd sing praises to God and he'd meditate on one verse or a couple words of one verse. And he did this year after year after year. This man was brilliant and he spent all of his time wrestling with who God is. And so I'm going to tell you when Jonathan Edwards says something and he writes something down about the spirit and the father and the son and who they are, it is hard fought what he's talking about. And you hear the things he says, and I want you to think of it this way. I'm going to say this, what Jonathan Edwards says, and it's not going to make everything clear. Maybe it will for some of you. It doesn't for me because I'm just not that smart. Some of you are smarter than me and maybe you will grab it and go, yeah, I get it. But what i the reason I left it in here is Jonathan Edwards opens up this door to me to think deeper. He says things that push the limits of my understanding that I've now got to wrestle with. And so Edwards says this, he says, the father is the prime, unoriginated, absolute manner. And the son is the deity of the father's understanding of himself. I'm going to say that again. The father is the prime, unoriginated, absolute manner. And the son is the deity of the father's understanding of himself. And he says the Holy Spirit is God in act flowing or breathes forth that's connecting the father and the son. That's a lot of big, heavy things to think about. I don't know about you, but it makes my brain hurt when I start to think about it. I start to go, oh, that kind of helps, but it's kind of confusing and it kind of makes it harder in some ways. But when I read that and I kept thinking about that and then I read what Jesus teaches and what he says in these passages. And so when you read John 14 and 15 and 16, you start to see why Edward says that, why he says it that way. He says that there They're all properly distinct, but inseparably all God, that God breathes forth the spirit and the son, and they're perfectly connected together. And then you start to read in here. And in John 15, it says the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the father. And Jesus says, I'm in the father and the father's in me. And when you see me, you see the father. And they start to speak in this language that you go, yeah, I see why Edward says it that way. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. Or then you start to see Jesus speaks and that God is speaking. Right, chapter 16, the Father loves you because he's loved me. That's Jesus speaking. He says, the Father loves you because you loved me. Because when you love Jesus, you love the Father. And they're perfectly together. And you see this in Jesus' language. And you start to wrestle with those things. And I tell you, I say that to you And I read his definition and I know that it's not perfectly clear. But please hear me. Continue to think on it. Continue to read what Jesus says about who the father is and who the son is in relation and how the Holy Spirit unites them together and comes and dwells with us and what that looks like. It's not easy, right? Think about anything that you've ever learned in your life. It's not somebody tells you one time. I can't stand up here and in a 35-minute sermon and go, here's what the Holy Spirit's like. And you're like, ah, I got it. Here's what God's like exactly. It is a lifelong pursuit, but continue to think on those. I think when you start to see that in his conception of this idea of kind of flowing forth the Father and the Son connected by the Spirit, and you start to get why Jesus speaks the way he does, why he says things like, I do not speak anything on my own. But the Father sent me, has commanded me to say all that I've spoken. He says that in John chapter 12. I don't say anything except what the Father tells me. Or you start to look at some of the passages or or some of the verses here in John chapter 14. But I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do everything that the Father commanded me. And they're so perfectly linked as one, of course he does. And you start to see that. Now, that's one example. And I'll tell you, take that for what it's worth. Maybe you go, okay, Jonathan Evers didn't help me at all. The second one that's maybe a little easier is C.S. Lewis. If you know who C.S. Lewis is, C.S. Lewis's great gift, I think, to the church is he takes great big, really difficult things and he makes them fairly simple. And he kind of brings things down that you can understand. If you've never read mere Christianity, I would encourage you to do so as a believer. C.S. Lewis starts with, I'm gonna assume nothing and then I'm gonna build my case of why I think we can believe in God. And he does it very convincingly. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. But in mere Christianity, when C.S. Lewis starts to talk about this idea of the Trinity, he says, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life an almost kind of dance. And I've always liked that. Uh, it hit me this morning as I was thinking we're singing and I'm standing there and Joanna says when I preach that I do my dance steps and I read that thing about the dance and I went, how awesome is that? Right. That God sends the spirit and he invites us into the dance that is his perfect love and what he's done for us in Jesus. And I go, and I really believe that was the spirit kind of going, I'm with you in this. And I don't mean that as a like jokingly. I mean, God speaks and tells you, I'm with you. But when you start to think about what Lewis says about this idea of a dance and this pulsating activity, you can almost see movement in the way Jesus speaks in these chapters. Because he talks about how the father is gonna send the spirit and the spirit's gonna come and glorify Jesus. And Jesus glorifies the father. And I've thought about this when he talks about the dance. And this is just the way I think about it. Maybe this is helpful. Maybe it's not. But that if the in God himself, father, son, and spirit is this perfect loving relationship that is a perfect unity that has always existed. And the father orbits around the son and glorifies him. And the son orbits around the father and glorifies him. And the spirit orbits around each glorifying them. And each one of them is dynamically moving around the other. And I don't know if it helps you, but it, it makes sense to me. I always think in my mind of this picture of the atom. You know what I'm talking about? Protons and neutrons and moving. I think we have like the little, the, uh, the little video of it. Have you ever seen that before? You know what I'm talking about? And how it starts to move and it mo- moves so quickly, you can't tell what's the proton and what's the neutron. And it's just this flurry of activity. Warning. I'm using an analogy that will go wrong if you push it all the way to the end, okay? Because God's not a proton and a neutron and he's not different things. He's one thing. And he's perfect unity and perfectly together. And the father's perfectly loving the son. And the son is perfectly loving the father. And the spirit is perfectly glorifying Jesus. And you think of this dynamic activity to where it's so moving that it's one thing. And in my mind, that helps me. That helps me to think about who God is and that he is perfectly loving and he's perfectly operating in those ways. But then you start to think about the what it says here in John 14 of the different roles. That the father sends the spirit in the name of Jesus to glorify Jesus. And that gets to some of our questions. Hopefully those things help you a little bit to start to kind of grab hold of something that's impossible for us to fully know. But when I start to think about that, and then you start to think about what each one does and the way that they're operating, there are different roles that it says. That the father sends the son, and the son humbles himself and comes to us, and then the spirit is sent from the father. Jesus says, I will send the spirit. The father sends the spirit in Jesus' name, and you start to talk about what they're doing and the way they're operating. And the question, which is a really good question, comes... If God is three persons and each person is fully God and there is one God and they're equal in substance and power and in glory, then how is there a hierarchy? How does that work? How does the father send the son and how does the son obey the father? And how's the spirit sent to do this work and all these things that are happening? Right, you see it right here. Verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved, you would rejoice. You would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. I mean, Jesus says that. He does say, I'm going back to the father and the father is greater than I. Or you get to verse 31, but I do as the father commanded me. Or you could go to verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will come and teach you all things, right? He's being sent, and it starts to sound like, okay, well, how does that work? How are they all fully God? How do we answer that? And there's a couple things that I want you to consider. God is perfectly one. He is perfectly loved. He's perfect unity in and of himself. And oftentimes, I think what happens is we think of submission, submission. We think of sending we think of obeying we think of those things as hierarchical terms and they are to a degree you're right to think that way some ways but i think the stuff that we recoil against and go one must be less than the other is because of our sinfulness and god is perfect unity and perfect love in every way i think of it almost as like and, and again you careful that you don't get into heresy and the way that you say things and the way that you go to them but when the father sends the son but they're perfectly god they're both perfectly god they're in perfect unity and so when the father's sending the son it's not jesus going oh fine i'll go it's them together in perfect unity it's like if we were talking about something i said i'll do this part and you do that part and at the same time, I go, how about I go? And you go, how about you go? And we say it at the same time because we're on the same page. But there's no hierarchy in that sense. But God has different roles in the, which, in the way in which that plays out that bring the fullness of glory to who God is and what he's like. And so oftentimes we kind of, we miss that because of our own sinfulness and our own way. Because what we often do, we all do this, not pointing the finger at anybody. I do it, we all do it. We take God and we put Him in human terms to try to understand it. We take an infinite God that is far greater than us and we try to put it in the way that we would think and that we would operate and then quickly leads to problems. And I think that's the case when we start to talk about the hierarchy. But you could still say, but wait a second, Jesus says right here that the father's greater. What do we do with that? I'm going away and I will come to you. And if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. Jesus says it. So what do we do with that? And this is where it's so important when you study your Bible that you take context, you take the whole of what the Bible says, the context of the Bible as a whole, but also the particular passage you're looking at. And then the book and the The, uh, context of what's happening and what's going on. So think about this with me for just a second. In the context of this passage, Jesus says, I'm going away. Go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about returning to the Father. And he's come to them. He says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to send the Spirit. That's the context of what he's saying. And so when he's talking about returning, He's going back to the fullness of the glory that he had with the father before all eternity. Actually, Jesus says that in John chapter 17, right? His high priestly prayer, he's praying to the father. He says this in John chapter 17, verses four and five. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. And now father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. And so think about the context of what he's saying. Think about what it says in Philippians chapter two. Paul's writing about Jesus. And he says, who though was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross And so the context, and I think what Jesus is saying when he says the father is greater than I, he has humbled himself and he has come into time and space, fully God and fully man in this way. And he says, you would rejoice if you knew where I was going because he's returning to the fullness of glory that he had. And so in the context of what he's saying, that the father is greater than I because of Jesus' humility and what he's done, but he's returning to the fullness of that glory. Does that make sense? And so when you put it in context of what it's saying, it's not Jesus is saying, I'm less than God. He is fully God. They're fully one and they are perfectly together in this. And so there's not a hierarchy in the way that we think of it. But then the next question, which is also a good question, well, who do we pray to? How does that work? Right? You think of all these things and all these pieces and you're trying to hold it together. Well, who do we pray to? You pray to God. And I don't say that like flippantly, jokingly, but pray to God. Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father. Pray to the Father. You read through the New Testament and they talk to Jesus and they pray to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Pray to the Spirit. You can talk to each one. You can pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you can pray to the Father. And you can pray to Jesus. I'm going to give you, and this, this is not any, I haven't thought this all the way through, so forgive me if it's not perfectly together. But I think of oftentimes when I pray, I pray with different things that God tells me that he does. That the Spirit's gonna come and lead you into all truth. And oftentimes when I'm studying my Bible, I go, Holy Spirit, show me what you want me to see. And I ask him, tell me, show me what that looks like. Or, or it says that Jesus is our great high priest who lives to intercede for you, that knows everything that you're struggling with because he came and he walked in the flesh, and he's fully God and fully man perfectly together. And so when I'm struggling with the sinfulness of my own flesh and my own heart, help me, Jesus. Would you please that you live to intercede for me? Would you please intercede for me? When I think about what God the Father has done in sending Jesus, thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to do what we could never do for us. And I almost always, and I'm not telling you this is the only way to do this, but I almost always pray in the name of Jesus. And the reason you pray in the name of Jesus is the reason that you can go directly to the Father. The reason that you have the Spirit in you and with you in all things is because of what Jesus has done for you. So I thank you in the precious name of Jesus that I can go directly to the Father because of what Christ has done for me. That you, Spirit, are with me always, and you never leave me, and you never forsake me. And it's because Jesus bore my sin. And he brought me into this relationship with you. And so don't get hung up on that, but pray to God. Pray to the Father. Pray to the Son. Pray to the Spirit. Pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The good news is when you pray to Jesus, guess what? The Father and the Spirit know they're perfectly one and they're God and it's not like oh you're only over here talking to Jesus there's still one God and so continue to take it through those those definitions from the beginning it helps kind of alleviate some of that last thing here and I'll be real brief that kind of answers hopefully that helps answer those questions because those are really good questions but I just want to say this kind of is an addendum right at the end why this is so important so at the beginning, we want to approach God as he is. And this is the way he's revealed himself. And we want to seek to really know God for who he is and what he's told us about who he is. So continue to think on these things. Love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind. And think and wrestle with him and continue to take thoughts captive and continue to wrestle with the truth of who God is. But then there's two really important things here that maybe you haven't considered before. But one is, if God is not triune, then love didn't exist before God created. That's a really important point. God is perfect love in and of himself that he has enjoyed from all eternity. And that his love is not dependent on us. And that's really good news for us that God's love is perfect and full and in and of himself, he is completely and perfectly held together in that. He doesn't need anything out of himself, the self-sufficiency of God, that he gives us that love and that joy and he shares it over an overflow and of abundance of who he is and that's really, really important. Otherwise, God is dependent on us and then he's no longer God. And he needs us to fulfill these things. And he doesn't need us. But think about the good good news of that. He chooses to love us freely. He chooses to share the overflow of the joy of who he is. That's one that's really important. And the second one is salvation is at stake. If Jesus is not God, then he is a created being. And he cannot bear the wrath of God that we deserve. Not the fullness of it. I tell you, I... I would say to you, that's the critical error of Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus is a created being. And they'll say, Jesus is a created being. And yes, he died for our sake. And he's the sacrifice that brings us back and all those things. But Jesus cannot bear the fullness of the wrath of God if he's not God. And he is God. And he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he's borne the fullness of that. Because he chose to do so and to come and do for us. And so these are really, really important things. That are at the very heart of everything that we believe. And so let's not be flipping about them, but continue to ask those really good and deep questions. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. We thank you that you don't fit in a neat little box of our understanding. I'm so thankful that you are so far beyond and above us in every way. But we do thank you that you've created us to know and to love you. We thank you that in Jesus, that you've given us the spirit to be with us and in us, to teach us and to lead us and to guide us. We pray that we would never forget that truth, that you are always with us, that you are at work in and through us, that we would, Realize that anew and afresh today. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.